0: We're in the middle of a series we're calling the shiny objects series. If you were here last week, you heard that Pastor Dan spoke about identifying some of those things in our lives that have essentially become idols, not the kind of idols like in the movie um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that golden thing that Harrison Ford went after, but these kind of idols, whether knowingly or unknowingly, shiny objects have become too much in focus for us, and they distract us from what is really important. He called us to renew and deepen our full allegiance, devotion, and devotion back to God, where it really belongs. He deserves our full attention and our worship. Today in part two of this series, we're going to look a little deeper and consider together what God has to say about three key things. Money, work, and debt. These things are part of all of our lives or affect all of our lives in very significant ways. A.W. Tozer once wrote, we usually think of him as being someone who writes about prayer and and the deeper walk with God, and he certainly does. But listen to what he has to say about this, about money. He says, money often comes between people and God. Someone has said that you can take just two small dimes, just two dimes, and shut out the view of a panoramic mountain range. Go to the mountains and just hold these two coins in front of your eyes, closely in front of your eyes, so that you cannot see the mountains. They're still there, of course, but the dimes are blocking your view. You see, it doesn't take large quantities of money to come between us and God, just a little bit in the wrong place of priority in our lives. The greatest danger to our soul, our relationships, and the best life we long to live for is really distraction. We know the truth. You're worshiping here on a Sunday morning at 9 o'clock in a sanctuary. You know Jesus, likely. You've walked with him most of your life. Many of you, many have come to faith more recently. We know the right things to do, but we live in a time of such great distraction. We can easily stray to begin to focus on other things. And this robs us of the freedom that God wants us to have. So today, our aim will be to discover some practices that will help us move from distraction back to devotion. I'm going to suggest a thought. Some of you know this gentleman named Warren Buffett. He's a pretty knowledgeable guy about money, right? And I'm going to suggest that if you could get one hour privately with him, would you welcome that opportunity to listen to his wisdom? How did he make himself a multi-billionaire through investing wisely and carefully over decades, and made a lot of other people a lot of money? Well, you might be willing to take a lot of notes. You'd probably shut up and listen, and just say, "Hey, what do you have to? How can you? I got only an hour with you." The reality is, we have some time with God Almighty today in His Holy Word, and we have much to learn. He actually knows about these things. He invented the whole system of the world. He invented the universe, and He understands His plan and is designed for us to prosper in Him. So I'm going to invite you to stand together with me. It's so nice to see people in the front row. Welcome to our new members here today. You can always sit here. There's always open, because no one ever sits up here. It's great to see people close up here. But our scripture today comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul says these words, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I invite you to remain standing for just a moment as we... Pray to the God who inspired these words to be written and then kept for us all these centuries in the book we call the Bible, God's holy word. He's preserved it for our benefit. Let's ask him who inspired these things to help us understand them and illuminate them to us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the source of every goodness we've ever experienced. Your heart is filled with wonderful plans for our lives, and we pray that as we consider your words together today, We'll hear you speaking to us. And even as we hear you speaking to us, Lord, by that same Holy Spirit, we ask you to empower us to live into your ways, to live into the freedom you've called us into and the true kind of prosperity that you want for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Earlier this year, and you might have heard this or read this, uh, financial editor Emmy Martin reported about someone who's fairly famous gentleman by the name of Nicolas Cage. You know him from movies like National Treasure and other many movies he's been a part of, but you may not have known. He had once was a top earner in Hollywood and had amassed a net worth of about $150 million. That's how much money he had at one point, but he didn't hold on to that fortune for very long. He squandered it away in a string of, well, let's just call it expensive and often eccentric purchases, eventually facing foreclosure on multiple properties, The IRS after him for millions of dollars in back taxes, and now his worth is reduced to roughly zero, or maybe at the highest, around 25 million. Now he's taking roles as many times as he can in movies just to get back and pay down his debt. So what does she mean in her article about expensive purchases? You might have read this. Try 15 residences at the same time. Two European castles. I mean, if you got one castle, you've got to get another one, his and hers, right? a deserted island in the Bahamas. You've got to have one of those, right, just so you can go there and hang out. He also invested in a nine-foot-tall pyramid-shaped burial tomb, just preparing for that eventuality, and numerous shrunken heads and a pet octopus. got to have that, right? And to cap it off, he had purchased a $276,000 dinosaur skull that turned out to be stolen, and he had to be returned to the Mongolian government. Well, Mr. Cage, as you know, is often portrayed in these eccentric kind of characters in his movies, yet we can learn a lot from his example. The Bible actually tells us or informs us that people who fail to place their highest priority on honoring and worship God will tend towards impoverishment. It's just a dynamic fact that happens. The prophet Haggai in the Old Testament chastened the Israelites for God had brought them out of captivity back into their land, and he just said, just build me a temple. And they're failing to do that. They're putting all their money into building and making nice houses for themselves. And God said, no. And by the way, if you don't know where Haggai is, it's towards the end of the Old Testament. You may not have read it, but someday in heaven you're going to meet him. And Haggai is, hey, did you read my little book in the Old Testament? It'd be good to be ready just when you meet him. Here's what Haggai has to say in chapter 1 Give careful thought to your ways. You planted much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Because they weren't honoring God first, everything they're making and working hard to get was just running right through them. Effectively, they were gaining nothing because God was not in the proper priority. You see, it's not how much money we have. It's how we handle it. Nicolas Cage had $150 million. That didn't make him rich because he had a hole in his purse, you might say, or his wallet. I'm blessed to have been raised by parents who lived through the Great Depression. Some of you may have lived through a part of that, or some of you had parents that did. And the values that were instilled of frugality and carefulness with money in that generation, I was blessed to grow up in a household. My dad taught me to hate debt. I mean, like, hate it. When everybody around was, you know, borrowing and and doing things, and I'm going to get to debt in a little bit, but he taught me to hate consumer debt, which was a very helpful thing. I recall after my dad, who became a very successful businessman, carefully, wisely investing in that for many years, we moved to Oakburg back in the late 60s, early 70s, and invested in a nice home over here, but my brother and I mused a couple of years after that where we had a family portrait made. It was a big, huge photograph on one of the walls in our house. We looked and we realized that every stitch of clothing on me and my five siblings was all purchased at Kmart. There's nothing wrong with buying your clothes at Kmart, but it was the irony of us living in this beautiful home. My parents still had the same values and they exercise that. If we can understand what God has to say that he, in the word that he actually wants to bless us, he's not trying to take the fun out of our lives, take the things away from us that we value or consider important. He's actually trying to bless us for these reasons that he outlines in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 12 through 13. Here are these words. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, his riches, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. I'm just going to pause for a second. Wouldn't you like to have God Almighty blessing everything that you do? All of your studies, if you're a student, all of the work that you do, all of the pursuits that you have, the ministries, your involvement, your children, your families, wouldn't you love that? Well, God wants that, and he's offering a way to achieve that. He says, if I'm blessing you in that way, you'll be able to lend to many nations, but borrow from none, being in a position of giving, not taking. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord your God that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top and never at the bottom. Sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? And if we read through the book of Deuteronomy, which rehashes many of the laws of the Old Testament, God was trying to bless his people, and they just often weren't listening. But being at the top and never at the bottom means things like this, that we will not be enslaved by anything. He wants us to experience sufficient pr- provision, not so much that we'll lose our way. He's eager to see us to be in a position where we're actually helping others, not just being hev- having enough for ourselves, but surplus so that we can bless and help others. He wants us to be freed from the burdensome weight of consumer debt that Eric was talking about a moment ago that so many get lured into and then have a hard time getting out. I'm going to come back to that in a little while. He wants his children, us, as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ and the Father God in this world to be calling us shots, to be people of profound and significant influence in this world. To fully appreciate and understand this, we're going to consider today how God views these three important subjects. As I said before, money, work, and debt. So money, we all have some. Some of you are carrying it around in your purse or your wallet, and some of it's electronic now, and so much of it is just we don't see it. I don't think it's a hard question to answer. How many of you last time saw all of the money you actually have in one place at one time? No, it's zeros and ones on a bank statement, not even a physical statement anymore. It's electronic. Your mortgage is that way too. It's out there, and they will want the money from you. But so much has gone away from us having a tangible sense of it. How much is really enough? Well, the age-old answer is just a little more. If you got 10,000, you want 20. If you got 100,000, you want to get 200. If you got a million, you want to get 2 million. Talked to an acquaintance of mine sometime back who is one of the richest people I know, and he probably was worth, at the time, about $40 million, and he was aiming for 50. Why? Because he could. That was his goal in life. And suggested to me at the time that once he got to 50 million, then he'll start giving to charitable things. I mean, there you go. You know, that's a goal. But that's the mindset. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. One little girl asked her father if he was able to throw a silver dollar across the Potomac River in Washington D.C. just like George Washington. And the father said, "Well, remember, dear," said her father, "money doesn't go as far as it used to. <laughs> just a little stupid human. <laughs> Things have changed. Things aren't so simple. But Jesus, the Son of God." who knows everything about everything, all the riches of God's wisdom are deposited in him. In the Sermon on the Mount, his seminal message, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the most profound and powerful sermon ever given, and I encourage you to take a deep dive into it regularly, he talked a lot about stewardship and about money and summed it up by saying these words in Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Prioritize that and all these things, and those things were food, clothing, and shelter, the necessities of life, will be added unto you or given to you. That's God's plan. Put him first, and he'll take care of all those other seemingly important priorities to us when we prioritize him first. See, how we handle money reveals much about the depth of our commitment to Christ. That's why Jesus often talked about this, One-sixth of the Gospels, those four short books at the beginning of the New Testament that capture the life and teachings of Jesus, one-sixth of those talk about stewardship and about money. One out of every three parables he taught to illustrate these principles was about stewardship. Now, Jesus wasn't a fundraiser. He wasn't trying to get people's money away from them for his own purposes. In fact, he effectively died penniless in this world. The one thing he left was his precious blood that spilled on the ground. The inheritance he gave us was salvation. He wasn't trying to take away from people. He was trying to teach them a simple principle. The reality is for some of us, though, money matters more than God or the things of God or the things God's trying to say to us because it pressures us. We've got bills to pay. We've got children to take care of. We've got tuition to pay. We've got a mortgage to pay and it becomes obsessive. God says, get me back in focus. Get me first and let me help you with those different things. Gallup organization did a poll recently that revealed that 64% of all couples argue about money. Imagine that. I think that stat's way wrong. I think it's actually higher get in real life. It's a major issue and concern in marriages, and in fact, they've discovered that it's one of the major factors leading to divorce. 54% of divorces are attributed to money struggles. No matter what the economic strata the couple's in, they could be both be earning $200,000, $400,000 a year, and money is still the thing that causes them to disagree enough to divorce. It's almost as if the vows they made have changed to till debt do us part. Most of us are trying to find ways to save money, I suspect, in a time maybe you cut out coupons, uh, and we still do that. I look through those money mailers once in a while and find something of value, usually a discount on pizzas or something that we're going to go get someplace like the wood grain over here in Ogden. I love that. But a New Zealand publication sometime back carried an intriguing advertisement of a tested and proven method for cutting household bills in half. Sounds pretty good. And they offered this to their prospective customers to get in on this deal for only $3. Well, it sounded too good to be true, so the local police looked into this. What were they offering? Well, actually, they found out that they're offering a very cheap pair of scissors for those $3 so that people could actually cut their bills in half. I mean, it wasn't paying their bills. It <laughs> was cutting their bills in half. A little bit misleading. But friends, when it comes to our money and our God, who's the source of all things, he wants to reorient our perspective. Graham Scogge put it this way, there are two ways in which a Christian can think about their money. How much of my money shall I use for God? And how much of God's money shall I use for myself? J.H. Dowett put it this way, the real measure of our wealth is how much we'd be worth if we lost all our money. We must simply remember that God is a true source for everything, including our material needs. Certainly, our eternal salvation has been secured at immense cost to God, the price of his own son that he gave for all. We read that in John chapter 3.16 in our response and our assurance of pardon a few moments ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his very best, everything, the most highly prized possible thing he gave to us. And yet he's asked us for something. His mechanism to help us practically to do this is to honor him by giving him a tithe, which is 10% of our income. It's a simple thing. God asked for 10%. He says, you guys can live on the 90%. Sounds like a fair deal. 10%, 90%, we get the better end of that deal. I've counseled with hundreds of people over the many years in ministry. I had a financial planning background and a finance career before I came into ministry and ended up counseling hundreds of people in financial crisis over that time period. A careful assessment of what was going on in their financial affairs, in almost every single case, these were Christian individuals or couples who had either never tithed, never given to God, or stopped doing it when their bills started to mount up. On the contrary, I very seldom, if ever, talk to families or couples who are tithing people, giving that, honoring God with that first 10%, who find themselves in crisis. Stress, yes. Challenges, yes. Job changes, all of those things, but the crisis is often averted by putting God first. I believe the bottom line is that those who exercise the simple financial discipline of tithing have found a way to think of their finances differently and tend to apply that principle and that discipline to everything else they do. It's a wonderful blessing. Now, I grew up going to church every Sunday. I grew up in a church tradition where it was required to go to church every Sunday. It was a mortal sin if you didn't. So we were there every Sunday, from childhood all the way through my 18, 18 years. And, and during those wonderful church services, um, and I always wasn't always paying attention, I admit that, I was a kid, you know, like maybe sometimes we don't pay attention, but they'd reach that basket across on that long pole and it'd go by. And then the second time, usually, during those services, would go by again. And for the first 18 years of my life, I admit it, I never put one dime in the offering, you know why? I was never taught to. My parents did it. I knew they gave, but they didn't teach me that the principle that I'm te- teaching with you out of Scripture today. It never was taught from the pulpit. I sat through all those, those services for 18 years every single Sunday, and it was never taught that God's plan to provide for us is you give Him 10, and He takes care of your 90, and He'll bless you and everything you put your hand to. Then when I got saved at 18 years old, Jesus came and loved me and forgave me and cleansed me and gave me a new life. And really, now I understood God loved me. And one of the first things I heard at a new church I went to, right down the street, Dave Scott, Pastor Dave Scott, I remember it like it was yesterday. He simply taught about tithing. He said, this is, you know, this is what God teaches in his word. And I just thought to myself, oh, I guess that's what Christians do. We just tithe. We just give 10%. Began doing it from that day and have continued. I admit it was probably easier for me at 18 with a part-time job give 10% of that amount versus what in later life I've been able to earn. But the principle is it was taught as a simple thing. And friends, it works. It works. God made these rules for a good reason, to help us. Now recently I was playing Kids Monopoly with my little grandson Henry. I wish he was here today. Just He wouldn't be standing here. He'd be running around and bouncing off the walls probably. He's a great, wonderful, energetic young man. But he likes Kids Monopoly. It's a really simplified version if you've ever played it. You've got little houses, and there's less money, and there's, it's really simple. Um, but he, he said, Papa, I want to set up the game. So he gave me a little bit of money, a very small amount, and then he gave himself more, and he said, I'll handle the bank. The bank's money is mine, too, and all the houses. <laughs> he rigged the thing. I said, why is that? Well, I, then I'm going to win. Well, he rigged the game so he could win. I said, well, that's not real life, Henry, but I let him win, and we got through all that. We can't rig the game with God. We'd like to be able to do that so that we get what we want out of it. He's saying, "Let do it my way, and I'll take great care of you. And what's his way of helping us have all of what we need? It's through this thing called work. It's God's design, its intention, to give us meaningful, productive activity to produce the income that we need to live on. Mike Slaughter, author and pastor, puts it this way. See work as a gift not a curse, and deploy it powerfully, not just to earn an income, but to bring about God's desired outcome. You see, it's his plan and his intention from the very beginning that he gave even Adam in the Garden of Eden a job. And this was not the curse after they fell. This was before they sinned. He said, here's this beautiful garden, you got a subtropical area. It's gorgeous. It's going to be spring-like all the time. Just hang out. He had an outdoor job in 70-degree temperatures year-round. What a great job, right? And God said, take care of this. Then they messed up and they fell and things have gone from there. But God did not give us work as a punishment, but as a gift and a blessing. It says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Responsibility. He trusted him to take care of it. One of the wisest men in the world, or wisest persons who ever lived, was Solomon. We read in the Proverbs, uh, great wisdom and guidance. Yes, he did get off the charts a little bit at the end of his life with uh, about 300 wives and 700 concubines. He kind of got off the trail on that, but he's still a wise person. And God inspired him to write these words in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 23. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. And in Proverbs twelve, eleven, it says, those who work their land will have abundant food, abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense. So work, productive engagement, not wild investing ideas or get rich quick schemes, are God's plan to provide. Some years back a good friend of mine, who is one of the most prominent individuals in the futures industry, both as a and as a manager of a large firm, he said to me, he said, you know, I've got a 100% guaranteed way for you to make a small fortune in the futures market. I said, hey, Bob, yeah, what is that? How can I write this down? He said, really simply, calm. He says, well, it's real simple. Just start out with a large one. Think about that. That's not the way, gambling, living in that way is not the way to achieve God's plan. Now, I realize in a group like this, some of you are working full-time jobs, or maybe some are working a job and another second job just to make ends meet. Some are students that are working a part-time job to get through that season of life. Some of you may be disabled and not be able to work at this time. And some of you are working in your home, raising children, and that's more than a 40 hour week job. I realize that. And some of you are blissful in that stage they call retirement, and you're not working anymore. You worked hard to get there, and I hope you're really enjoying it. But you probably planned ahead saving up over time to get to that place. But the reality is, whatever situation we find ourselves in life, God will open a door for us to work, to earn, because we are also people of influence in God's kingdom. And he plants us and sows us as messengers of his in our workplaces, in our schools, in every place that we go to both carry the message of Christ with us and to shine the love of Jesus every place we go. But the Apostle Paul, speaking to the church and Thessalonica in Greece or uh, the eastern part of that area back in the first century, instructed them very specifically about this thing called work. In First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul says this, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, and here's the reason, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will be dependent on no one. It's a great place to be. And he goes on in Second Thessalonians. He has to come back to this a second time. They didn't get it the first time. Those are two separate letters separated by a couple years. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. This is the Apostle Paul, who was entitled to be paid for what he was doing as a messenger of the gospel. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because you do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Unwilling to work, not incapable of working. It's really important, unwilling to work. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They're not busy, they're just busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. Simple message. They were dealing with it then in the first century. Every place the gospel has gone and through the centuries, I suspect every culture has dealt with the very same thing. Some people wanting something for nothing. That's not God's plan. His plan is that we would work. So what happens when we are working hard? as I suspect most if not everybody in this space is doing, or we're working those two jobs and maybe both spouses are working really hard and and we just can't keep up, we can't can't make our ends meet. Well, then we often will turn to this thing called debt. We need more money coming in, we're earning all we possibly can, we're trying our best, so then we get sometimes lured into these great offers, no payments until 2020, and then it's gonna be 50% interest for the rest of your life. I'm exaggerating just a little bit, but consumer debt, I'm going to get to that in a minute, is a trap. It looks great. Zero down, zero interest for a while, and then if you'd make those minor small payments, then the back end will crush you. But not all debt is bad. Earl Wilson put it this way, in this world there are three kinds of people, the haves, the have-nots, and the have-not-paid for what they have. So some of us might be someplace in the middle of that. As I said a moment ago, let me be clear. Not all kinds of debt is bad or evil by any means. Investment debt can be used very carefully and wisely. It's consumer debt we need to be careful of. Investment debt is something you incur a take on to buy a home, like a mortgage, to invest in a building if you're in a business or a factory, or even to build a church building as we've done here at Christchurch. It's a purposeful, intentional way of borrowing money from a bank at a certain interest rate that you believe your growth rate or your return rate will exceed that rate of interest. So a simple mortgage, you can still get one for around 4.5% long-term nowadays. And if you're investing in a home that appreciates at 4 to 5% a year, you're, you're heading in the right direction. That's an appreciating asset. And you still, in many cases, can deduct your interest. And maybe, over time, having paid off your mortgage 30 years down the road, you have your nest egg for retirement. You've accumulated this thing called equity so long as you don't take out a home equity loan in those moments of crisis and suddenly encumber your future. But the fact is, wisely investing. Investing in appreciating assets is important, especially business owners that take uh, risk by saying, we're going to build another factory, we're going to employ another thousand people, we're going to take that, and oftentimes borrowing, because they're borrowing at 5 or 6% uh, on commercial loans, and maybe their return on their investment in their business is 10 to 12% a year. That's wise use of debt. What I'm talking about here today is this consumer debt. It's what 41% of American households carry, not in their mortgages, we're talking about on credit cards, about 41%, not carrying something month to month where you pay it off, but carrying it ongoing and loading up one card and then going to another card, which will come in the mail, we'll give you another one. They'll give you another one until they know you can't take anymore and they stop giving them to you, but find themselves behind a tremendous burden. The reality is if the interest rate on a credit card or revolving debt is 18 to 30%, which is pretty much the range. The initial rate might be lower, but read the fine print. That really small print you can't really read, it's going to escalate and create a great bondage. We need to be very careful. So right now in America, that kind of debt, consumer debt, is roughly around $4 trillion. A lot of people are doing this. Banks are getting rich. Those credit card fees are accumulating, plus the amazing amount of interest that they're taking on those is making them rich and a lot of people bound. So borrowing via credit card is something that if we're doing it, we need to find a simple solution, and that is stop. Find it another way, but stop doing that. Our financial peace course uh, that Eric mentioned is designed around helping people dig out of that consumer debt hole that many of us have found ourselves in at times. The reality is if your outgo exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. Think about that. If your outflow exceeds your income, your upkeep will be your downfall. Consumer debt is a great bondage. If you need help, if it seems like there's no way to get out of that vicious cycle, that's time to get some credit counseling. Sit down with a professional, sit down with somebody knowledgeable, and talk this through and find a way to change the tide. And do it today. The help is there. Reality is four to five Americans today owe more than they own in total. Their net worth is negative. Forty percent borrow more than they can make payments on. The average American is not but a few weeks or months away from bankruptcy, just at the edge. That's That's a great bondage which limits what you can do, where you can go, where you can choose to move. Friends, God's design is that we get help from him and from his word, and this is what he's counseling us on. Just last year, 750 Americans filed for bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy. Got to that place where there seemed to be no way out. The only way out was to kind of clean the slate and start over again. And maybe some of you are in the midst of that or facing that, but friends, no matter how deep that hole is, there's always hope. If you change some of the things you're doing today, you can start going in the other direction and find God's purpose for your life. See, this pattern, though, of not having control over our assets or our income is because a lot of us just haven't been taught. We just things, we just get into life, salaries keep going up, we got two incomes coming in, it's just all happening, and we haven't gotten this basic thing called budgeting. Like, how much are we really making, and how much is really going out? You're going to help uh, the financial peace course would help you do that as well. Many families just don't have a budget that they work from, and they figure it's just going to keep, their earning will keep going up, but then when one loses a job, Or maybe a child or two is born and one earner can't do it, then the the whole thing gets thrown upside down. God wants to free us from that burden, and he has many principles to help us. But I realize also self-control is something that's kind of a lost art. Self-management is something in our culture that's kind of been thrown by the wayside, and this same pattern that applies to finances applies to other things. Failing to exercise or eat properly can lead to a doctor finally shaking and say, you need to change your ways, dude. You've got to stop doing this. You've got to start exercising. Get on a treadmill, do something, because they see a pattern coming, and they warn us, and they say, change your ways. We can act, fail to exercise self-restraint with things like alcohol. Having a couple drinks is no big deal, but when it becomes more and more and more, we run the risk of ending up having a DUI, which will mess up so much, or worse, becoming addicted, which can wreck your whole family, wreck your marriage, and destroy a life. There's so many ways in which self-control that God offers to us through His Holy Spirit can ruin our lives. That's not God's will. He wants us to enjoy the abundant life, blessing everything we put our hands to. And where do we get, how do we get to that place where there's a short path to that? And Paul shares this secret in Philippians chapter 4. He says this about contentment. He says, I have learned, I didn't start out this way, he says, I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need and I also know what it is to have plenty. So he's been poor and he's been rich and he knows both ends of it. I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The secret of contentment is saying, thank you, God, for what I have now. I may not have everything I need, in your perception. I don't have everything I want. But I will be content and say, what you provided for me is enough for now. Contentment is saying, thank you, God, even though I may not have what my neighbors have, my friends have, what my parents expected me to have or my children expect me to give them or whatever else it might be, but I'm going to say, I'm going to choose today to be content. That's a decision. And then we can start to move forward and thank God for all of what he's given to us. And bringing that thankfulness and that vertical communication is extremely helpful. Before I finish, I've got to mention one other kind of debt that I absolutely suggest you never do, and that's gambling debt. Some years back, I was at a church down the street, and we had a benevolence program that I created and oversaw. And and so we had gift cards, $25, $30 gift cards with stamped no tobacco, no alcohol, which we'd give out on a weekly basis to people came in, you know, for diapers and for basic necessities for their families. And once or twice a month, we could handle, we had a budget for maybe a mortgage payment of $500 or a rent check we could give to a couple of people. We only had so much allotted for that. So one of those days, I was there in my office, and I got a knock on the door, and there's this young man in his 30s, and he says, hey, somebody said I should come and talk to you. The volunteers had sent him in to talk to me because obviously they couldn't handle the need. I said, so what's going on? He says, well, I'm kind of embarrassed to say this, but I need $80,000 by tomorrow. These guys are going to come and break both my legs. I sat back with the gift card, set them down on the table. I said, well... Um, I don't know that we can help. I can pray for you, and maybe we can afford a one-way bus ticket to Toledo. Um, (laughs) Friends, if you're one of those who find yourself swimming in this financial vortex, swimming in debt, know that there's help, there's hope. God will lead you to a better place if you'll listen and let him take you there. He's here now. He'll be here tonight, meaning he'll be with you every moment. He'll be with you tomorrow. He wants to take you to that better place. I mentioned financial peace class, which is starting. I really urge that. We're also offering, if you're in between jobs, and that's part of why you're in a financial situation, an, an enhance your job search skills class this very week on Tuesday night. You may have your resume out all over the place. You may be getting resumes, but not I'm be getting interviews, but they're going to help you with interviewing skills. How do you actually get the job? How do you get the job that you really want instead of just taking a menial job that you don't really want to do? We are offering a course this very week. If that's you, I encourage you to check it out. There's information at our our guest centers out here today. But before you let your financial issues ruin your marriage, talk to a pastor. Talk to a financial counselor. Get that under control because God wants to bless everything you put your hands to. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness We thank you for your love for us and that you really do want to prosper us in the right ways. Not to make us so rich that we lose control and lose sight of what's really important, but to give us enough for all of our needs and extra so that we can be helpful to others, that we have enough to invest in your kingdom work that is bringing life-saving truth, help, and hope to people both here in this area and around the world God, I pray by your Holy Spirit you'll lift those that are in the the, the trap of this to a better place to see that there is hope, there is help, and it will come from you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.